Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, October 13th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from the Schwenk Studios in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. Sarah Abbott's working from the Sarah Abbott Studios someplace around Bristol. And I'm Buster only in a hotel in Bristol. Uh, I'm here uh, serving, doing my duty on Baseball Tonight following the baseball playoffs and guys those are two great games yesterday huh oh yeah we're all knotted up at ones going back to philadelphia and san diego we're gonna get crazy environments i mean that game last night between the dodgers and the padres was was awesome i I, we couldn't ask for more so far this is a great start to playoffs which means we're due for you know a couple sweeps in the future no no (laughs) no that's not gonna happen today the Guardians are going to come back and win. Today, the Mariners are going to come back and win, Sarah, because that's what we need. We need four series splitting in the first uh, first two games. Oh, is that me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You would be Sarah at this point. You, when I say <laughs> yeah, Sarah, I wasn't sure. to you. <laughs> Sorry. My birthday brain is still on. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. I know. Yeah, those were great games last night. Um, I'm just, I love October baseball. It's so fun. Yeah, so Sarah has birthday brain. Taylor just has binge brain, right? (laughs) Whoa! Whoa! (laughs) Blow, blow. (laughs) All right. Today is going to be a great show. We have Jaime Harin, who's in the last of his 64 years as a broadcaster for the Dodgers. He's got great stories. I ask him a lot of fan questions, which is fun for me as someone who grew up as a Dodger fan. We're going to have Joe Madden, the former Cubs manager, Angels manager, coming on to talk about his new book, and I asked him the question, is all this conversation he's had about analytics and how he doesn't necessarily want it in the clubhouse all the time going to hurt his chances for another job? And, of course, we're going to be talking with our friend Sarah Langs. Two great series seem to be developing in the National League. The second game yesterday, Padres and Dodgers. And I talked uh, earlier in the week about how Manny Machado – just seems so comfortable in the playoffs this year. He was here. He was in the top of the first inning against his old teammate Clayton Kershaw. Kershaw ready to two one, swing and a drive, rocketed to left towards the corner, and that is gone. Manny Machado a home run just inside the foul pole down the left field line, and that quickly the Padres lead it one to nothing. A bullet off the bat of Manny Machado. And with you, Darvish, on the mound for the Padres, the Dodgers came back. Here comes a 3-1. Swing and a high fly ball center field. That one back. Grisham jumps. That one is gone. Home run, Freddie Freeman just got out. A towering home run to center field as he matches Manny Machado. And we're starting over. 1-1. The great Boog Shambi with that call on ESPN Radio. The Padres had a 3-2 lead in the bottom of the third inning, and this happened. Here's the pitch. Swing and a high fly ball. Left field. That one on its way, and that one is gone. Inside the left field foul pole, a no-doubter from Trey Turner. He homered last night, and his homer here tonight ties this one up. It's 3-3. But the Padres would punch back in the top of the sixth inning. The pitch. Swing and a chopper through the right side hole. That's a base hit. Around third is Cronenworth. He's going to score. Throw cut off. And the Padres lead this game 4-3 to three on an RBI single by Jerickson Profar. Now, Wednesday was a game of great defense. And here is an example of that. The pitch. And that's bunted towards third. Safety squeeze. Throw home. Tag. Out at the play. Grotterell picked it up with the bare hand. And on the move, the big guy fired a strike to Will Smith. And the Dodgers cut a run down at the plate. And then this happened. And the pitch. Swing and a ball drilled center field. Bellinger turned around. Back around. Over his head. He made the catch. What a grab. He steals extra bases from Austin Nola. Yeah, and incredibly, by the end of the day, those would be the third and fourth best plays on the day, despite how great they were. Now, every October, heroes evolve, and one of those is Robert Suarez, 31-year-old reliever who came in with the Padres in trouble in the bottom of the sixth inning. Lux climbs in the pitch, swing and a ground ball to the right side. Cronenworth, the second for one, return to first. It's a double play. 
4-6-3. Suarez comes in and does the job. In the top of the eighth inning, a crucial tack-on run for San Diego. The 1-1. Swing and a high fly ball. That's crushed. Right field. Way back there. And that one is gone. Deep into the night down that right field line. A mammoth home run from Jake Cronenworth. And the Padres have added on its 5-3. All right, I feel obligated to mention this and what happened in the bottom of the eighth inning, but I'll tell you afterward why it made me cringe. Give a listen. We have a goose in the outfield sitting in right center. Very relaxed. Wow. Um, I'm not sure how they're going to get this goose. I mean, I don't know my bird life that well, but... Yeah, there is straight up a goose in the outfield. (laughs) All to strike. They're continuing. And they're going to play. Play on. Yeah, so they played on the goose uh, eventually during the half-inning break. They went out to retrieve the goose to get it off the field. And I would say, guys, because it it set off a bunch of conversation that goose was not healthy. And I was kind of feeling bad for the critter. And I was surprised that wasn't brought up at any point. Like, this poor animal kind of hurting. You could see it out on the field. Did you guys have the same impression? Yeah, definitely. Birds don't lay around like that no. unless they're hurt. I, someone on the television broadcast briefly mentioned it, but that was pretty obvious to me. And then they kind of they were a little rough with them or that bird. They could have they could have grabbed it up a little bit gentler. Yeah, yeah, no. they put them in a trash can. <laughs> Upside down, by the way. I, oh, no. I, and I was watching just you know I haven't been around animals my whole life. I was just like ah, geez. Anyway, here was the final call in the bottom of the ninth inning. Josh Hader on the mound. Hader is ready. on the way. Swing and a ball drilled to right, but right at Soto. He's there. He makes the catch, and the Padres win it. Hayter closes it out, and the Padres take game two here in L.A. That series now tied one all. It moves to San Diego after an off day. After the game, Clayton Kershaw was asked about the quality of his slider. No, it's not really fair. I mean, I think, I mean, that's how I got out of the jams. You know, I threw some good sliders there to strike some guys out. And, um, I mean, I did leave, I left the one up to Manny, but he also, you know, if I throw where I'm supposed to, I think I get him. So, um, I definitely had a few sprays in there, a few misses. Um, I think it was more the curveball. You know, I think I bounced a few curveballs. And then um, when I did throw for a strike, you know, Manny got the hit behind the count, which I usually don't throw curveballs behind the count. So that was impressive. And then Will Myers, too, with the curveball base hit. Um, I didn't really expect that either. So, you know, that was a little bit um, unanticipated, I guess. Dave Roberts, Dodgers manager, was asked who's going to start game three for the Dodgers. Tony Gonsolin will start. We extend him in, in the uh, in the live sim games that we had um, this past week. So we feel good about the length and, and how we still in the baseball. And the Padres, of course, are lined up with Blake Snell and Joe Musgrove for the next two games in San Diego. Bob Melvin, Padres manager, talked about Josh Hader's four-out save. He's ready to play. So, um, you know, didn't do it during the regular season. You know, kept his workload at a minimum. He saved those type of things for, for the postseason. He was all for it. He knew that, you know, any runner on and two out, he was going to be coming in for four outs and did, did what we expect him to do. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, where you earn rewards with every purchase. Vivid Seats Rewards is your ticket to more tickets. Vivid Seats. Life happens live, and it happened in Atlanta after a rain delay of two hours and 55 minutes. The Braves and Phillies got started, and it was a great pitching matchup early. Zach Wheeler for the Phillies is someone taking the mound only a few miles from where he was born. And Kyle Wright for the Braves, he was dominant. This will be the 80th pitch of the night for Kyle Wright. And here it comes to Hoskins. Call strike three. Went to the curveball again. Back-to-back punch-outs. That was Carl Ravitch on ESPN Radio. And Kyle Wright, Vanderbilt grad, got some help from another Vanderbilt grad. On the 0-2 to Real Muto. And he hung one, but this one has popped up. Shallow left field. Swanson going out. Oh, what a play! Over the shoulder, Willie Mays type catch. He goes to the ground, Dansby Swanson. In the bottom of the sixth inning, there were two outs. Zach Wheeler pitching to Ronald Acuna Jr. First pitch to Acuna would hit him. They hit Ronald Acuna. Got him either on the right hip or the right arm. Yeah, it was on the right forearm. He was in a lot of pain. 
And there was a long delay at that point as they checked on Acuna Jr. Four minutes and 45 seconds. And at some point, uh, Zach Wheeler was throwing warm-up pitches. But you kind of wonder how Wheeler may have been affected by that delay. Because the next hitter was Dansby Swanson. He walked him. It was the only walk that Wheeler allowed the entire game. And then this happened. Here it comes. Olsen rips that one on the ground. It gets past Hoskins under his glove. Acuna's going to come in, and it's 1-0 Atlanta. Hard hit, but a play Reese Hoskins should make. Olsen delivers Atlanta's first run of the game and the game's first run. Yeah, and Reese Hoskins in that situation had to at least keep the ball in the infield, but it got through him, and the Braves take the lead. The rally continued. Wheeler delivers, Riley at the plate, slow roller down the third baseline, and there's no play. Wheeler picked it up, had no throw, and in from third comes Olsen. It's 2-0 Braves on a ball that traveled 45 feet. In the top of the eighth inning, uh, with the Phillies at the plate, Austin Riley seemingly matched that incredible catch by Dansby Swanson. He lifts this one towards the line, third base, foul territory. Oh, Oh my gosh, what a catch by Austin Riley. He ran into the tarp, threw his glove out, and somehow the ball ended up in it. What a play by Riley. And you heard Tim Kirkshin's response. I mean, you know, that uh, Taylor, the audio we have from Tim is going, oh, oh, (laughs) no. (laughs) Classic Tim right there. It really is. And it actually, those two catches spurred a conversation we had on baseball tonight. Which catch was better, Riley's or Swanson's? And I reached out to Hall of Famer Chipper Jones to get his opinion. Uh, We'll talk about that in a bit. Kenley Jansen came on in the ninth inning. Jansen ready on a 2-2 with two outs to Harper, leading 3-0. Here he comes. Harper swings and misses. Kenley Jansen, the strikeout. Atlanta wins 3-0. And it's a brand-new series now tied 1-1 after two games. Here's Phillies manager Rob Thompson about the ball that went through Reese Hoskins. I think if you asked Reese, he'd, he'd say he should make that play. I don't know whether he had, didn't get a good read off the bat, or, um, but you know, it's probably a play that you should try in front, keep it in front of you if you can. I don't know whether he had time to do that. But, uh, yeah, I think if you asked Reese, he'd probably tell you you should make that play. Here's Braves manager Brian Snicker talking about Kyle Wright. Yeah, pretty much. And then some, probably just, uh, you know, weather, the rain delay, um, <clears throat> you know, just how he went about. And that was huge for us. I mean, we needed to kind of get to our back end guys. And, and um, you know, he did. That was pretty impressive what he did tonight. Here's Snitker on those two great catches. Oh, yeah. Well, we had two of them. We had Dansby's catch, which was unbelievable. And Austin's, too, on the tarp was I said they could be showing both of those for the next year. Um, they're just unbelievable plays. Yeah, it was a great game defensively for the Braves. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, one quick thing to mention here. Season eight of Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy has returned every Wednesday. Tune in for fun, thoughtful, and candid conversations with trailblazers in sports. And as always, Julie brings the donuts. So listen to Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it. They won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code. 
and requires choice package. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, of course, reporter, producer for MLB.com. And Sarah, uh, we're going to have to dive right into this and throw you right in the middle of the controversy that developed last night during baseball tonight. (laughs) The question, it's a fun question, which play was better, the catch by Dansby Swanson or the catch by Austin Riley? And not to try to tilt you, I texted Hall of Famer Chipper Jones and asked him to decide uh, and he said his initial response was Dansby, zero angle. And then I could almost hear him thinking out loud, like, can I make it 1A and 1B, not 1 or 2? But I'm going to make you go 1 or 2 here. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I wish I could have 1A and 1B. I do think the tarp is really, uh, you know, quite a compounding factor there for Austin Riley. But I also think that there has to be some sort of additional consideration for the player's defensive prowess or what we think of them. And Dansby Swanson was, by a lot of metrics, the best defensive shortstop in the majors this year. Austin Riley, no disrespect, but has certainly struggled with his defensive uh, reputation so far at third base in the majors. So I think there was a little more shock value maybe in the fact that he was able to go over and make that play. But they're both amazing. I mean, Dan V. Swanson definitely evokes Willie Mays in a bit. And I know Carl Ravitch made that call on the radio on ESPN Radio. And I really did love that. Yep. Yeah, they 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 were awesome. Uh, and the fearlessness of both, uh, yeah. you know, to watch Dansby sort of keeping an eye out for Eddie Rosario you know, worried about a possible collision. I, I He didn't really talk about that as much, uh, you know, in detail, but I think that was a big factor, especially after that play we saw in Toronto over the weekend with Bo Bichette uh, and George Springer colliding. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 86. So speaking of those catches, Austin Riley needed to cover 86 feet of distance to make that catch top the eighth on Bryson Stott's pop-up, Dansby Swanson need to cover 78 feet. Very, very similar in terms of how much distance they had to cover, but they were amazing, and I knew I wanted to bring those numbers. Hearing you and Jess Mendoza and Zubin, Zubin didn't really get in on the argument, but hearing the two of you, you and Jess, arguing about this on baseball tonight, last night, I love that. Number two. Number two is four. So Josh Hader last night to nail down a very crucial game two win for the Padres got his first save of four or more outs since August 14th, 2020. It was the first time he'd gotten four outs in a a game since the postseason in 2020 in a game that the uh, the Brewers were already losing at that point against the Dodgers. So this was the first time he was asked to get four outs in that kind of situation since August of 2020. And that Padres bullpen is really seeming like it could be the difference maker in this series. We saw them not allow a hit in game one and keep this game in hand last night. And you're starting to look at these two teams and wonder if maybe that actually sets San Diego apart, even with all that the Dodgers did this year. Number one. Number one is four. So, so far this postseason, the Guardians have scored four runs all via the homer. Exactly what we expected of a team that did not have many regular season home runs at all. But of course, they need to find a way to piece together some hits and get some other runs as well. But I was curious about the most consecutive run score all via the homer to begin a postseason. And the answer is they and the Padres come up again. So they did that this postseason. Each wow. of their first eight runs in the series that we did with the Sunday baseball crew were all via the homer with, of course, Max Scherzer, and then that first run in the second game, 
And then the 1998 Red Sox were the other team to do that. So we'll see if the Guardians get to it in either way. But so far, four runs all via the homer for them. All right. Uh, I want to, you know, give, give you a couple of my theories going into today. One on the Guardian series against the Yankees. Um, you know, for the Guardians to win today, I think they got to hold the Yankees three runs or less. And I think, uh, you know, one big thing for Bieber is compared to past playoff uh, outings against the Yankees, he needs to be more pitch efficient. You know, I I've, I remember games where he's pitched against the Yankees in the past where it felt like they ran up the count, they sort of spat on breaking balls off the corner, and I feel like he's in a better place in his career now to be more aggressive. What do you think? I agree with that. You know, I remember that 2020 game. That was the year where we knew he was going to win Cy Young. It was so obvious he had been so good. He ends up giving up seven runs to them. And it really felt like they just patient, patiented him to death. Not a phrase, but as you're saying, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And I think we saw with the way he pitched against the Rays that he is pitching differently right now. And I would say that the way that he has managed to be good this year with that drop in velocity that he sort of hasn't addressed, doesn't seem to care about, he has become a bit of a different pitcher. And I agree that it's going to have to be a low-scoring game if they're going to win. I mean, I was just talking about the fact that they're not scoring a ton of runs only via homers, but if this is a 3-2 game, I think they can do it. If it's much more than that, I'm just not sure. Mariners-Astros, I'm going to go all Captain Obvious and say that for a young team playing against some vastly more experienced Astros team in the postseason, it's a it's absolutely paramount that Seattle score first in this game after what happened in game one. What do you think? I agree, but I wonder because they scored first last game. They scored first off a future Hall of Famer. They got four runs off of him early, and that still happened. So, you know, I was seeing all the media availability yesterday. Jared Kelnick saying good teams just bounce back. That's what we'll do. Very easy to say that. I'm very curious to see if they can. But if there's any team that can, I mean... You know, you were talking about Dansby, Swanson, Austin Riley being fearless on those plays. You know who else is fearless? Julio Rodriguez. And I think that him leading off that game, I mean, I almost feel like the way he approaches that plate appearance is going to tell us a lot about how this game is going to go. And I will say, there's never been a team to blow that kind of lead in that situation, give up that walk-off home run, and then get to trot out Luis Castillo. That is a really good spot to be in. All right. Uh, one of Chipper Jones's best friends in the world is someone you know, the legend, Boog Shambi. Here's Boog talking about you. She loves baseball so much. And I, even as I moved on to the Cubs, would text her questions. And I'm not sure that I right away realized how much she loved sometimes a rabbit hole that I would send her down and it would just engage her so much. And then we'd go back and forth on text. Um, gosh, she loves the sport so much. And, uh, beyond that, I, I will say, I don't know that you could encounter someone with a, with a bigger heart. And, uh, yeah, I love her to, I love her to pieces. She's, she's wonderful. But as a, a, a baseball person, you talk about someone that is a shining example of she loves this game. Uh, and that, uh, that Taylor c- cut that off there, but we went on to say uh, that we both feel like we all uh, owe somebody some money because we both steal information from you, Sarah, all the time, even though you stop working for ESPN. It is not stealing. I'm always glad to help. Always, always. And I went down a rabbit hole for a boog yesterday about the Dodgers' defensive efficiency. They had the best defensive efficiency by any team in the full season since the A's in 1990. And, you know, I mean, boog, thank you so much. And thank you, Buster, again. I mean, I really appreciate it. 
all of this. I don't deserve or need any of this, but thank you so, so much. All right, Sarah. Good to see you, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Sounds great. Thank you. Joe Madden has managed 19 seasons in the big leagues. The Rays, the Cubs, the Angels leading the Cubs to the World Series title in 2016. And he is also the author of the new book, The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life, written with Tom Verducci. Joe, it's good to talk to you. Good morning, Buster. Nice to see you again, too, buddy. Yeah. So where are you when we're talking with you today? I'm uh, looking out at the 8th uh, Green here at the Valley Country Club in Sugarloaf, Pennsylvania. It's rainy. Uh, in between all the little stints I have today, I'm going to try to get out and play maybe uh, 10 holes at some point. Nice. Uh, well, uh, before we get started in talking about the book, I, and I got a bunch of questions for you sure. about that. I <laughs> wanted to ask you about the playoffs that are going on right now. Padres, Dodgers, the series tied one all. What are you seeing in the Padres? You know, they got through the Mets. Uh, and now they're taking on the team that they've really struggled to beat. They lose 14 and 19 during the regular season because yeah. when I was around the Padres over the weekend, man, that team is loose and they feel confident, especially Manny Machado. That's it. Uh, I think, you know, they've kind of had enough. Uh, when you get beaten up by the Dodgers as badly as they have for as long as they have, I just think they've had enough. Plus, they have a lot of talent. Their starting pitching is outstanding. I'm a big fan of all those guys. I was happy to see. You have such a, a good night in the sense that, that Darvish kept his composure last night, and that's what I loved about his performance. But I think they're motivated. They're absolutely motivated right now. Uh, the way they held on to that victory last night, I think, really uh, screams a little bit uh, regarding how they're feeling right now. I know Bo Mel well, and I think Bobby's going to do a great job with the whole thing. And they have to play loose. I mean, my goodness. Uh, the tighter you get, the worse you're going to play. It's a very simple equation. It doesn't uh, make any sense to try to apply more pressure to the group. So as long as they maintain that attitude, I think they're going to be fine. It's going to be an interesting series. I'm not saying they're going to win, but it's going to be an interesting series. What was the degree of difficulty from your mm -hmm. eyes, uh, you know, someone who's been in baseball your whole life, of the play that Dansby Swanson made for the Braves last night? Yeah, it's, um, you know, spectacular. You know, he didn't go into the stands. Otherwise, he'd have been Derek Jeter. You know, it's just this. I really, I'm a big fan of this fellow. When he... Went over to the Braves. I didn't know who he was, and I got to see him play. And I know his career did not start necessarily in a great fashion, but uh, physically very gifted guy. I, I just like his attitude. I like the way he plays. I think he's a kind of a throwback guy. So what he did last night is not a surprise. He didn't address this uh, after the game, but I thought when I was watching him as he tracked that ball, part of it, the, the mathematics he was doing in his brain was in part because Eddie Rosario, the left fielder, is coming in. And I think he, that his eyes were mostly on him. Because no, you got it. You know what I mean? With the, we saw the play the other day with Bo Bichette and George Springer crashing into each other. And if you're a shortstop going out, that's got to be top of your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Collisions are, are really devastating. You do. You have to keep your head on a swivel at all times. He's when you when you work with middle infielders, they're taught to keep their head on a swivel just when it comes down to cutoffs and relays. They're used to moving back and forth to track things and, and still make a play. So that's kind of like second nature to a guy like him. But I almost like you're uh, referencing the play in Toronto. I'm sure that's in the back of some of these infielders' minds after they saw that. All right. Uh, tell me what you, uh, when you decided to do this mm -hmm. book and what was it that you wanted to accomplish? Well, um, decided to do the book after the 19th season, talked to Tommy. Um, I had been approached about it in, in uh, 2008 when the Rays got to this series. I didn't think I was ready to do something like that. So I got together with Tom and he was on board. And then we decided we wanted to really compare and contrast managing and uh, the 1980s compared to what it looks like right now. And then on top of that, to include all the different madnisms and try to create a book that would appeal to a wider audience and not just a baseball audience, leadership kind of stuff. I've heard from several people they feel like would uh, fall into the self-help category. And that's very complimentary because that was the point. I didn't want it just wanted to be about me growing up in Hazleton, PA. I wanted it to reach, again, a wider audience. And I think Tom's brilliant. Tom's a brilliant writer. And what he did with all this stuff, I, I taped audio taped about a hundred hours riding my bike during the pandemic and then gave it to him and he put it all together. And so how much uh, work did you do on it after uh, you were let go by the angels? Oh, just a couple of days. Um, because they wanted to include, they being the publisher, my agent, David Black, and of course, Tommy wanted to include something there too, to just, um, um, you know, try to again, correlate the managing in the eighties to present day. And that was really the intent. Describe the biggest difference. Managing in the 80s, in the 90s, you know, yeah. in the aughts compared to now. 
Well, there is, uh, there's a lot more people involved. Uh, back then the manager was kind of autonomous. Um, and I know I saw GMs were actually almost afraid to walk into a manager's office. There was never any kind of uh, game strategy being passed from upstairs to the manager's office uh, outside of like uh, uh, an advanced scout, which is not necessarily the same thing. An advanced scout we report directly to the manager. Uh, even back then, the manager, and I'm not in agreement with this though, the manager I thought had too much uh, input into trades and who should stay and who should leave. I didn't think we had enough um, information in order to make those kind of decisions because most of the time, guys would evaluate based on uh, a player playing against them only. They didn't see uh, this player against the rest of the league. That was one part I didn't agree with, but otherwise uh, I liked it because um, the manager is, is hired and he's there for a reason. His coaching staff is empowered. Um, they, they build this, this program um, that, um, you know, they, they feel very strongly about and the players can follow, et cetera. Now, having said that, I also like the idea like the Dodgers and the Cardinals for years had a method that was passed along from one to the other, but they seem to maintain their managers for a long time and the program remained the same. So there was just more, for lack of a better term, interference. I like the idea of information. I want it. And I can't, I can't um, put all that together myself. Although as a bench coach for the angels in the late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of what you're saying route is what I actually did by myself. I didn't have the same depth, but the same kind of um, uh, workup that I did before those uh, series. So as you know, um, you know some of the stories, the headlines written around uh, you know, your comments in recent weeks have almost conveyed the idea that you're anti-analytics. And I got to say that I'm right. <laughs> and and you know you were when you were with the Rays, you guys were considered to be at the absolute forefront of that with defensive shifts, with looking for matchups. For example, when you guys beat the Red Sox in the playoffs in 2008, you call in uh, David Price for his first career save because of how he matched up against the Red Sox. So when you've seen that response to what you said, uh, tell me what, what your feelings are. Well, again, I just have to tell you what I'm thinking and try to explain myself maybe a little bit better, but you're absolutely right. I'm not against uh, information analytics, whatever you want to call it. Um, I just want it to be put back in its place, meaning that it serves baseball. Right now, I think baseball is almost serving data and analytics. Um, people get the impression mm. that teams are good and they win because uh, of that, because the numbers are good. Uh, when the game begins, um, you go through a meeting, um, a series meeting, or even a nightly meeting about that particular team or group, and you go over some stuff. But I promise you, players could only hold a nugget or two into the game. Managers, coaches, we hold, we have to hold more probably, but at the end of the day, it's always about little things, little nuggets, and the prep that you do before the game. And here comes the game. And theory and reality are two different things. You have to be able to react in the moment. So I want it. I want this stuff in advance. I want it to be the best anybody's ever done or made. And then once the analyst, whomever this person is, passes it along to the coaching staff, then he moves on to the next group, unless the coaches, the manager have questions. And of course, based on the stuff that you've given me, I, I wasn't quite clear about this and you get back to them. But otherwise, I think there needs to be a separation. There's too many people in the clubhouse before the game, right up to the point where you're going out of the, dug, uh, the office to go to the dugout where people are discussing to you bullpen strategy. You know, by that time, I pretty much made up my mind and I don't really need that kind of input. Tell me when you feel like that you began to see the tipping point in that, uh, to go from what you guys were doing in Tampa Bay to, to now, you know, you're feeling like, look, this, uh, you've got people invading the space when we don't right. need it. Yeah. I mean, with, with uh, Tampa Bay, Andrew and I had a great relationship and, um, you know, we talked daily and uh, there was times we had great arguments. It was fantastic. And, and I think he taught me some things and I taught him some things too, but there was never an intrusion into the, into the manager's office or the dugout. Uh, I never felt that there. I think probably uh, 2015 on 2017 on, I saw a greater movement with that. I think part of it is um, there's, there's a, an aspect to the group that wants to control more what happens in a dugout. Um, the analytical group has pretty much overtaken the, 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 the baseball guy that was raised uh, minor leagues, uh, might have possibly played, went through this long process of earning the right to be there. That was a group in charge and the analytic folks were on the edges and it's completely switched where analytics and, and the group that's really into that are in charge and the baseball people are on the edges. And that's, that's, I'd say right around that time, 15 to 17, 18, somewhere in that area, 
I've seen that kind of a switch uh, where uh, really tried and true baseball folks are having a hard time getting a job. Um, and I'll even speak to the minor leagues. I don't know who's passing on this game to minor league coaches. I'm not even worried about the players. I think the way the game should be played, uh, the tried and true methods, what fundamentals are all about, who knows how to teach this stuff. It's not about a spreadsheet and a printout out of a rap Soto or a track man or whatever. That stuff is very helpful. I'm not criticizing that, but who's teaching the actual physical method of this game and how to perform it. Uh, Gene Segura's base hit uh, from the Phillies, little uh, butt out base hit to right field yesterday, the Braves, uh, uh, with the, the ground ball by Olsen and then the subsequent just little taps here and there is something you're going to see this time of the year, but it's not nurtured uh, during the regular season. And right now, any analytical, analytical person would be very happy for that butt out base hit to the right side with two strikes, uh, whereas it's not encouraged to be taught uh, during um, minor league season or during the season. So there's a lot of disparity with that, I think. I want tried and true baseball supported by numbers. So tell me if, if you were to interview for a managerial job and a front mm-hmm. office person asked you about the boundaries that you would recommend and, and mm-hmm. how to define that relationship, what would you, what would you tell them? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I've absolutely thought about that. Yes, I want all of this. I want the best analytical staff money can buy. But uh, the way I'd like it to be implemented would be that whomever's in charge of accumulating the data information, they do that. And then here comes, I don't know, two o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock, or even in the morning via a PDF file or a phone call or a text. There's a communication between the coach in charge of that, whether it's defense, hitting, pitching, whatever. He gets uh, in touch with this or this, this, this analytical person who's in charge of that particular area. And they get together and they talk about that night's game or, uh, or the, that series, whatever you want to call it. Once that has been completed, maybe by two o'clock, then it's separate. Then the analytical people are not in the clubhouse. They're not constantly in your ear. They're not constantly trying to influence what's going to happen tonight. And they go back and they work on the next night or the next series. So there's, there's got to be a separation here of power in a sense where these people are really good. I want them, but I don't want them so obvious and in, intruding because I'm telling you, uh, coaches get gunshot. Coaches, and, and I even said that I did as a manager because – You'll get criticized if something doesn't work. And it's not necessarily about maybe the acquisitional process. The player maybe is not living up to standards. It's because you didn't do a good enough job coaching based on the information I gave you. To me, that's where the disconnect lies. I'd like to see that go away. Yeah, Joe, an example of that for Mm -hmm. me is the pitch counts with starting pitchers. I think Mm -hmm. less and less in the time I've covered baseball – my gut instinct is that a lot of times the, the you know manager and the pitching coach are not necessarily analyzing what they're seeing in front of them. They're, uh, yeah. The manager is more processing the equation of, oh, shoot, if I this guy goes beyond 100 pitches, I'm just going to throw a number out. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to hear from writers, and I'm going to hear from my assistant general manager when he walks in after the game. Outstanding. <laughs> You're right on the money with that. And part of that is, I mean, and again, this is not a denigration, but there's a lot of people working dugouts now that have not had that experience to know when it's okay to go by uh, to, to surpass 100 or 105, 110. Even in the book, um, I talked about the time Jake Arrieta in Minnesota in uh, 2016. Uh, we had him go. I, I permitted him to go and pitch a complete game, shut out, even though we're leading eight nothing, and he was at 100 and some pitches going into the ninth. I think he ended up with 119 or 120. In my mind's eye, as a minor league instructor, I was always felt when you permitted or when a young man pitched a complete game shutout, he changed. Uh, his mind changed. Uh, once you've been able to accomplish something like that, you want to do it again. And furthermore, now you know how to do it again. And that's what you want. I mean, when you get starting pitchers pitching more deeply in the game, you should have a more effective bullpen. And, and that's going to play out over the course of 162. You're 100% right. There's a numerical thing that goes on in every every manager's heads these days because they don't want to have to, have to answer the questions afterwards. So along the same lines, and I've seen this evolve in my time covering baseball, uh, you know, a game ends and a team loses. Mm-hmm. And I just in the last five or six years, you walk into a clubhouse and there is some member of the front office right either in the manager's office or outside the door. And my instinct is because I, you know, been around not only the the, the manager and the pitching coach, the, the player, but also the players, that there's after a competition, they're generally speaking within a clubhouse. There's a desire to take an exhale, you know, to get a glass of wine, 
to take a breath. And when I've seen assistant GMs, when I first started seeing this dynamic, where they walk into the manager's office right after a game and like, and you know, the questions are essentially, what were you thinking? What were you doing? I, 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 it just made me cringe a little bit because I felt like the rhythm of a folks lives that I know in the game, that doesn't fit. It's almost like, dude, wait till the next morning. Cause Joe, I've heard that from pitching coaches through the year, starting pitcher is a lousy game. They're not going up to the starting pitcher that night and say, Hey, Tell me about that decision to throw that curveball in the third right. inning. They're going to wait till the next day when you know mm-hmm. they're 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 standing out on the field or having a conversation in the clubhouse where it's decompressed a little bit. Does that make sense? Better, Buster. I, I can. I mean, you're, you're describing it perfectly. There's nothing I could add or subtract from that. That's exactly what's been going on, and um, that that is a big conversation among coaches and managers that. Uh, immediately after a game is over, you'd be walking down the hallway and all of a sudden opens the door and everybody starts walking in this uh, train of, of people, whether, like you said, assistance and assistance to assistance, and they're already in the room. And after a tough game or a tough loss, there's a lot of players in there that are kind of upset and you don't want to interfere with their, with their moment right there. They need time, like you said, to decompress evaluate what had gone on and they're not very happy people. And then of course, here comes the coaches who are even less happy. Or, or less concerned or upset about maybe a decision like you said that was made, that they did not do a good enough job coaching that player through that moment. All the above. Uh, they don't belong in the clubhouse right after the game, <clears throat> especially after a loss. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'll say that. After a win sometimes, not as obtrusive, but after a loss, please stay clear. There's a lot of emotion flying around that room. And uh, again, I can't, I can't add to your description. It was right on the money. So, uh, you know, when, when you uh, first uh, began talking about this during the summertime, uh, I've heard from executives, I'm sure you have too, where they ask, boy, if Joe wants to manage again, this not, might not necessarily be the best thing to say out loud, even if you believe it. I know you well enough to know you've processed all of that. Uh, right. You know, tell me about that if you feel like this conversation might hurt your chances to manage again. Well, I, I don't want to manage under those circumstances again. I'm hoping that maybe the conversation that I'm throwing out there and the thoughts that I'm throwing out there might uh, cause a, a group or a couple groups to possibly rethink and want to move in another direction and I might be appealing. So I'm not worried about either way, quite frankly. Um, uh, this is almost like an interview for me in advance because I don't want to waste anybody's time either. And furthermore, it needs to be said what I'm being, what I'm saying right now because just like you're talking about, I'm getting like texts, phone calls, messages from managers, both present and past. I'm getting it from former GMs, uh, present players, and absolutely a ton of coaches. Email this morning from a former player from the 1980s. Um, everybody's in agreement. Things like this have to be said. And I'm and again, uh, people have to understand. I am not knocking information or analytics at all. You were right about that early on. I'm. I'm concerned about the presentation and I'm concerned about the game is not being taught like it had been originally and, and should continue to be taught uh, fundamentally. You know, the, the three true outcomes, the home run, the walk and the punch um, that's all attributable to the swing. Last night I was watching some teams that just needed to score a point with runner in scoring position and two outs and the swing never changed. It stayed big and it stayed aggressive and it's trying to go too far and home runs as an example, there's so much uh, about that, that, um, uh, it, it offends your sensibilities as a true baseball guy that's been doing it for a long time. I'm just one of them. So if I don't say it, nobody's going to say it right now. I'm not concerned if somebody takes us the wrong way. Hopefully it's going to cause a conversation among groups that even if I'm not desirable to you, at least you're going to change your methods in regards to um, how you distribute your analytics and how it works before the game. And you have to understand, stay out of these guys' way, man. They don't need all this stuff. They want nuggets. They don't want dissertations. Uh, last one. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about uh, Buck Show all day the other night. Uh, he has information, as he referenced uh, after the game on spin rates on Joe Musgrove, who was dominating. Uh, he went out and asked the umpires to check Joe for foreign substances. The umpires, you saw him rubbing inside Joe's ear. Yeah. Uh, nothing is found. As you watching that play out, uh, tell me what uh, your thoughts were. Well, I understood where Buck was coming from. I mean, it was kind of a, a, a tough moment for them. Um, I saw him gathering baseballs earlier in the game. So they showed um, highlight or not highlights. They just the camera pan in and he's grabbing. There was a foul ball or a ball thrown out. He would ask the ball boy to give it to him. And I've been in that situation myself. 
So he was looking for stuff. And I, and I got that. And then um, I'm sure guys are coming back and say, wow, that ball's just disappearing. That's the best stuff I've seen Musgrove have. He probably got those kind of comments, but I think the over uh, the, the, the item or the, the method that, that caused this to all the occurs, the fact that he must've been uh, privy to the spin rate somehow, because that would be, I, if I'm watching that performance from the side without the benefit of technology, I would say, man, he is on tonight. This is going to be a tough night for us. But then again, if somebody shows me this printout stuff that has uh, backing regarding how the, it impacts the pitch and how we've just attempted to get away from that buying, uh, preventing foreign substances in, in the game and on the mound. So there's a lot of contradictory stuff going on there. But I think finally technology is what caused Buck to walk out there. All right, Joe. Uh, I've taken a lot of your time. I greatly appreciate it. It's always great talking with you. Of course, uh, the, again, the uh, name of the book is The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life, written with Tom Verducci. Joe, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Buster. I really appreciate it, buddy, and great to see you again. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jaime Harin has been a broadcaster on Los Angeles Dodgers games since 1959. He's the winner of the Ford C. Frick Award in 1998. And he is wrapping up an incredible 64-year career. How are you doing, sir? Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing I'm great. Fine. What's it been I'm like fine. for you? Uh, uh, what's it been like for you to have this uh, celebration this year? It was wonderful. It was a surprise in, in a way. Um, it, it was a long, long, long day and a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful night. Uh, <laughs> so many friends around, family. Mem uh, friends from Ecuador, from South America, came especially for that, and uh, they came on Friday. So it was great to see them, and and it was fantastic. So give me a uh, an exchange you had with someone, or you heard from somebody this year, where you're like, "Wow, that that's that's pretty new." It stuck with your heart. <laughs> well, uh, I expected something, you know. Uh, after sixty four years of working with the Dodgers. Uh, I was. I thought that it was time, the right time for me to 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 hang. I am like a Rocky Marciano at his corner, just waiting for the bell to sound to start my last round. So uh, it is. It is. It is fantastic. It's fine. I, I think I am ready for for retirement, and um, 
Of course, I'm going to miss um, baseball because I have the game in my my blood. But I think it's the correct time to to quit. Yes. So, so in retirement, I'm curious, how much baseball do you think you watch? I just had a conversation uh, with Alex Cora the other day about the postseason. You know, mm. of course, the Red Sox were knocked out. And he went to a game in his first day off. He went to the Mets game to see, you know, Joey uh, coaching for the Mets. When you're in retirement, how much are you going to watch? Um, I won't be going too too often to the to the to the games. Probably I will watch on TV many times. But personally, going to the stadium, I don't know. I'm going to stay with the organization for two extra years as a PR guy. They they call me as, as an ambassador. I will be attending, you know, representing the organization on some banquets and an organization meetings, something like that. But uh, I don't know if how often, it's very hard for me right now to tell you exactly how often I will be going to the games or how often I'm going to be watching baseball and on TV. But I think I think TV will be more accessible than, than going to the ballpark. What are you looking forward to doing in retirement that you haven't been able to do? Because every year for six months, you spend all that time on the road. Yes, well, I'm going to be helping my son Jorge running the foundation that we have in memory of my wife who passed away three years ago during spring training in Arizona. So uh, we see the need of uh, helping young kids going to universities. We signed an agreement with the with California University System so they can match my, my scholarships. I hope uh, someday I will be able to give probably 40 to 50 scholarships of $5,000, $10,000. So that's my, my goal, working with, with, with Jorge, taking advantage of the, of the fact that my name has been flowing around uh, lately very quite often, thanks to you in part. Uh, so I'm going to try to appeal to big organizations, big foundations to recognize my foundation and through us help kids here in, in, in Southern California go to universities. So if someone wants to uh, to help out with that, where, where should they go? Uh, um, uh, well, I w- we will be uh, we will be announcing uh, where to go. Um, we have a, an address uh, uh, for 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 the internet. Uh, it's uh, Jaime and Blanca Rain Foundation. Uh, no, let me see. It's uh, it's harainfoundation.org. So that's the address. So. We will be getting in touch with the organization through the mail or so. So when I've talked to you in the past, I've been reluctant to throw a bunch of fan questions at you. That I'm sure you get a lot of, but I, I, as I told you, I grew up a huge Dodger fan in central Vermont uh, oh. and, uh, you know, rooted for the, the Garvey teams, the Say teams, the Bill oh, Russell, yes. Davey Lopes, yeah. uh, Dusty Baker, that group. Um, so it's fun for me to be able to ask you questions like this. Yes. Uh, who is your favorite player to broadcast uh, about? Uh, well, you have to, you know, if you, if I, if I, ever, I was four, five, six years, uh, then it would be a very easy putting point exactly who. But you know, in the sixty plus years, it's tough. I'd have to go by by decades, probably at the beginning, Willie Davis, because he was very, very special with me. He saw in me a very young guy. I was only 19, 20 years old. You know, 22 years old and very green. So he took me under his wings and he was extremely, extremely nice with me on the road who take me to have lunch and things like that. So I will say it has to be Willie Davis. Then, you know, Dan Drysdale and, and Sandy Koufax. Later on, uh, the guys and uh, uh, in the infield, in all of these guys, Garvey and Say and, and, uh, and, and the Cashers, you know, Steve Yeager, and uh, all of them. Uh, later on, you know, Mike Piazza, then Fernando Valenzuela, and Oral Harishaisel. And now, of course, uh, uh, Buki Bits and, and, uh, and Clayton Gershaw. So you're making me emotional because uh, you and I have never talked about this. Um, you know, when I was 10 years old, uh, yeah. my Little League got to travel to Montreal to see a game. And I went there with a baseball and I wanted one autograph from one player, and that was Willie Davis. Oh, Willie Davis. He'd been traded from, for Mike Marshall during the previous winter, and because of his connection with the Dodgers, he I wanted to get his autograph. But I was an idiot at 10 years <laughs> old. I knew nothing. Yeah. I didn't know how autographs were gotten, and so I, and I had to build up my courage. 
And so first, second, third, fourth inning, I'm like, I have to go down and ask for an autograph, ask for an autograph, not knowing that you don't do that right yeah. during the course of a game. So yeah. in the seventh inning, I built up the courage and I ran down to the edge of the Expos dugout and met him uh, as he came off the field. And I said, Mr. Davis, can I have your autograph? And he signed the ball. Oh, really? He was and very nice, especially with me. He's extremely nice. So I will never forget that he took me under his wings. No question about it. Yeah. So we're well, talking about the, the early 60s, huh? This would have been 1974. Oh, 74. Uh, yeah, when I was 10 years old, when uh, when he, he signed that autograph. So that uh, it will always <laughs> stick with me. Uh, what was your favorite moment you ever broadcast? It's tough to say. I will say probably, uh, you know, when I when I arrive at the, at the Coliseum, I have never seen a baseball game in my life. And being there, I was shocked to see such a big, big, big place. Then, when I saw 75,000 people, uh, oh my goodness, screaming and roaring, and that, that impression that I got in my mind for the rest of my life, that moment. Then, uh, as a game, I would have to say the, the, the perfect game by Sandy Koufax, uh, because that was the first one and the only one that he pitched. So that was very, very, very special. Uh, what was uh, for you your home run call, uh, which is a signature home run call? How did you uh, come up with that? Out from the air, I don't know. I never prepare things. I I always have leave everything those those moments, special moments. So I don't know how I came out. I have been trying to to think how it came out. I don't know. I think it was a home run. Then I came to to my to my mind that expression and 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 uh, and use it, and I like it. And people start calling me about the the home run call, and they like they love it. They love it. So I stick with that. Kurt Gibson's home run in 1988. Uh, tell me what your uh, favorite memory is from that. Well, uh, the most important thing for me about that was the fact that he was. No, he was limping so much before the game, and uh, and uh, and I, I said to myself, "He's no, there is no way he can pe he can play," and uh, and I was wrong because he came to the game and and it was like a just a flash, you know. I have had some other games like the ones that uh, when the Dodgers hit four home runs in the ninth inning against the Padres, and then Garcia Parra hit another one in the tenth inning after the Padres when I hit again. And that, that game was really very, very special regarding home runs because it was one, two, three, four, and five. So that's, that's my number one. That's my number one, that game, uh, Dodgers-Padres uh, with four home runs in a row in the ninth inning. I was 17 years old when Fernando Valenzuela had that incredible uh, 1981 season. What do you remember about that? Uh, well, and, uh, as, a, as a unique year, uh, we won't see another season like that one. Um, he joined the Dodgers in 1980. Uh, to me, Fernando Mania started in 1980, not 81. He started on that last series of the year against the Astros. Jonico pitching for the Astros, Valenzuela for the Dodgers. Uh, no, he wasn't pitching for the Dodgers as it started. He, he was in the bullpen in 1980. And uh, that is when the people realized how special he was because he saved one game, he won another game. He didn't have nothing to win the third game when the Dodgers tied uh, the Astros. Then we had an extra game. And some people was, were, were asking for uh, for Fernando to start the game, but I think Lasorda was right not giving the ball to him because he had never started a game. He was just a few weeks with the ball club and things like that, and that was a key game. So he he came. I think who started the game? I think um, is that Jerry Royce? It, it wasn't Royce. You know, it wasn't Jerry Royce because Royce was supposed to start the the, the game. Um, the the deciding game. Oh, that I'm talking about eighty. So it was Sutcliffe. Yeah, it was Sutcliffe. Then Fernando came in the sixth inning, but the game was already in favor of the of the Astros. Johnny Crow pitched a beautiful game, and he was hit six to three, something like that. When Fernando came in, it was too late, and the Astros won. So they they went to the World Series, and the Dodgers 
got to wait in an extra year, 81, to, to do that. The last I saw you, it was when, uh, I think it was the day before the memorial service for Vin Scully. Uh, and you related the, the story to me about uh, after games, you and Vin Scully and some of the Dodger coaches would, would get together in a room and, and share some wine. Uh, oh. How much fun was that? Those are precious, precious times because, uh, especially in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and those cities, Vin will ask Billy Delory, the traveling secretary, to get us a room on the top of the hotel so we can get together after the game. And he he used to get a room upstairs. And uh, and then it was Vin, Joe Malfitano, Dave Wallace, Billy Delory, and myself. And some wine, some crackers, some cheese there. And so we started practically just listening to Vin. He would give us so many stories and he would give us so many anecdotes and, and experiences that was unbelievable, beautiful. Really, it was about, I will say, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, one hour. It was then we start talking, exchanging views, but it was Vin who, who really, really was marvelous in that regard. Marvelous. Well, uh, I when you told me that story that that stuck with me the image of you getting to share that time uh, with Vin. Uh, well, I appreciate your time, sir, and congratulations. And I hope to see you at Dodger Stadium next year. Let's hope so. I will be there. I will be there doing. I'll be watching some games, not too often, not every day, but I will. I shall be there because I have uh, baseball in my veins, and, uh, and it will be tough to just forget about the sport. Uh, I, I I am grateful with the Dodgers for giving me the chance to stay that long uh, doing the games and, and have enjoyed very, very much. And now I'm just looking forward and hoping that uh, they say goodbye to me with another World Series, like the one that uh, that uh, I had when I started with the Dodgers in 1959, my first year, they won the, the World Series beating the White Sox. So, so nice talking with you, Buster. Thank you very much. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Thursday. Bleacher Tweets are brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Eric Sorensen with a great question. At Coach Sorensen 9 writes in, I'm taking my dad to the playoff game Saturday in Seattle. It's the first playoff game we have ever gone to. What's a do not miss while attending a playoff game in person? Uh, Well, I personally, back in the day, I stopped doing this, uh, but going and getting a hat. Mm. Uh, you know, I always get a, I get a playoff hat with that playoff logo on the side. Mm. I, I, you know, I love those. I have one from the Giants uh, from, I think, 2010. So that that's that's my go to. I just want to be there early. I want to watch batting practice. I want to get the atmosphere and the atmosphere in Seattle is going to be unbelievable. Oh, my God. Yeah, just <laughs> I mean, get- it's going to be so much fun. But I, I got to ask you guys to weigh in on the on the, the question of the day. Which catch was better? Dansby's catch or Austin Riley's catch? Sarah, start with you. I mean, Austin Riley had to go over a tarp, you know, like that. The obstacle adds something to it. However, I will say the PCR post catch reaction, as I call it, my new favorite stat. <laughs> I have to go with Dansby Swanson because the shock on his face that he even caught it was kind of hilarious. OK, uh, Taylor, I'll go Austin Riley because of the tarp. And when I watched it live, I was like, Oh, wow. Did his hip just disintegrate as he barreled into the tarp there? Uh, thankfully not. But I was very impressed. And it didn't go out either. It didn't touch the the screen or whatever it is behind the home plate. So, yeah, I'm going to go on Austin Riley. Jessica Mendoza uh, agrees with the, you guys talking about Riley and how incredible that catch was. I would say, I you know, I didn't have as much confidence as Jess would have in going against a Hall of Famer. I mean, Chipper Jones played third yeah, base, yeah. right? He played shortstop in the big leagues, and he's telling us Dansby's catch was the better one. So, I don't know. You guys are going out on a limb a little bit. I guess I guess if Chipper says so, then then that's it. I, I generally defer to Jessica Mendoza, a gold medalist, but, you know, Chipper Jones, I think, might have the edge in this conversation. <laughs> I stand <right>. with Jess. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to our friend Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit. He writes in the Braves Phillies had a high scoring game one, a low scoring game two. Which do you think is more indicative of the rest of the series? Um, I think there's going to be some scoring. You know, the Braves hit a bunch of home runs. The Phillies have a really experienced offense. But man, they they need Kyle Schwarber, who can be really streaky to break out of the funk that he's in right now. 
P.K. Steinberg writes in, is Travis D'Arno the best catcher that no one really talks about? P.K., I'll co-sign. I agree with you. And man, is he comfortable playing in October? Kyle Benning at Kyle underscore Benning writes in, why isn't there a postseason war statistic? The goal every year is to win the World Series, so postseason performance should carry more weight than it does in Hall of Fame considerations. What better way to encapsulate that than postseason war? Yeah, Kyle, I think the reason why you probably don't hear that much about it, A, it's a small sample size of games. And so, to you know, I don't think you're if you were to say, yeah, well, that guy had a 0.7 war in the postseason, that wouldn't be as, as uh, you know, eye catching as saying, you know, in, in five starts, he had a one three ERA. And also the teams play such a there's such a wide variance of the number of games that the that players uh, participate in because teams get eliminated. But as you as as I read your question, I was saying to myself, my goodness, I wonder what Madison Bumgarner's war was in 2014 when it felt <laughs> like he was pitching every other day and throwing shutouts. I got to get that number from Sarah. It's probably about 11. I'd go 11 for that one just to guess, you know, not know anything about numbers. Yeah. Uh, last one for today. Scott Mitchell at SM The Runner writes in, you mentioned pitcher spin rate has increased and they must be using sticky stuff again. Are the umpires just ignoring the sticky stuff now because I see that they are still checking every game? Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've heard from managers. They think the checks that the umpires have basically been doing are just BS and it's oh. eyewash and they're, they're not really that serious about it. Um, and that's not a criticism of the umpires because it, it's more of a criticism of the culture of how it's how it's dealt with, right? Um, and I think the, the leadership has to come from Manfred, quite frankly, uh, you know, and the folks at the head of baseball operations for Major League Baseball. They basically have to tell the umpires, they have to let everybody know, guys, we're seeing the, the spin rates go up. We know what that means, and we're going to come, we're coming for you, and we're going to order our umpires to be more thorough in their checks. Sticky stuff, check theater. Didn't think that was going to come up today, but here we are. Thanks here for writing in, everyone. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter as you're watching games tonight. Thank you. That's it for today. My thanks to Jaime, to Joe, to Sarah, Sarah and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something that we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.